Welcome to Real Cup Radio. Today we have Melinda Kula online, and she is going to represent and talk to you about her parents, Walter Sr. and Dorothy Babbage. And uh, since it's Mother's Day weekend, we are doing a memorial in talking about the horrific thing that Melinda has had to go through today with you all. Melinda, hi. How are you? And I thank you and your husband, Todd, very, very much for this opportunity to get attention out there to the public for what can happen when we have corrupt police and corrupt officials, which is what happened to helpless, defenseless, seriously crippled elderly couple during their wedding anniversary weekend. We need to talk about these things. Walter Definitely. Walter Babbage, Jr., I'm sorry, Walter Babbage, Sr., uh, was my father. Dorothy Babbage, my mother. What you don't know and should know about Walter Babbage, Sr., he fell in love with my mother after she divorced our paternal parent when I was a little girl. There were three of us, my sister Diane, myself, and my sister Patty, one year apart, each of us. My paternal parent was a very, very cruel, vicious person. What brought that on, why he was that way, I don't know, but he was to the max in his cruelty to my mother and then later to his three little girls. A Catholic priest helped my mother divorce him because he said, if you do not do this, your husband, their father, will kill all of you at some point because it was getting worse. So she did. After divorce to this horrible man who beat her every single day and left her in pools of blood and did horrible things to the three little girls, of which I was one, after she met a gift from heaven, Walter Babbage, Sr. He fell in love with my mother's jet black eyes and her radiant jet black curly wavy shoulder length hair. And she was a very fine looking woman, a very beautiful woman. Marilyn Monroe had nothing on my mother. And he fell in love with her three little girls. Walter said, I want to adopt these three little children and make them mine. Bob said no. He flatly refused to allow it because they will never forget until the rest of their lives they belong to me. That's not really what he meant. We will never forget for the rest of our lives what he did to us is what he meant. So Walter said, that's all right. We will not take any money from you for child support. I am raising these children. I'm going to work my fingers to the bone for these children. I'm going to love and protect and provide for these children. And by that, they will know I am their father. And for children to come, they will all know these are their brothers and sisters. And that's how we were raised. Mom and Dad, Walter Babbage Sr., never permitted the word stepbrother, stepsister, stepfather. Those words were never uttered 
by any human being in our family. One day there was a huge gathering, and I do remember this. I was older, maybe eight years old. And I remember someone dared, out of stupidity, ignorance, or being politically correct, addressed the three little girls as his stepdaughters. My father turned that person around, escorted them out of the house, and said, never return, never call. Those words hurt my three children, and they don't know what that means. So you are banned from the family. He put our feelings and his nurturing of our feelings of unity for the family above all else, and that includes closing the door on that one ignorant person. This is what kind of a man my father was. Loved all seven of his ducklings. Because after the three girls, two years later came my sister Barbara. And then every two years was a boy. Ronald and then Walter Jr. And then Daniel, the baby. My parents were the block parents. Walter and Dorothy Babbage were the block parents for all the other children. No matter what neighborhood we moved from and to, they became the guardians of everyone else's children. It did not matter your background. It did not matter your financial position. My parents took on every child as if they were their addition to the family. That meant you helped do the dishes, you helped clean the house, you behave yourself if you get into trouble. You should fear what your mother and your father is going to do to you, but you should also fear what we're going to say about your bad behavior and what measures we will take about your bad behavior because we cannot affect bad apples to poison the rest of the family unit. So behave yourself. And they did. They did because they loved my mother and father and they respected my mother and father. That was my mother and father. But one horrible day, one day I will never forget for the rest of my life, I was at home in the morning getting ready to go and help a neighbor. She had a gift shop. Her son committed suicide. She could not close the gift shop. They needed the money now more than ever. Because my mother had a gift shop and I ran it with her, I knew how to do that. So I offered to take over her gift shop as long as it took. I'd open it. I'd close it. I would make sure all the bills were paid. I would make sure constant flow of merchandise was there by the use of my friends helping. So I knew I was going to be there, and I wanted to get there early. Before I left my own home, there was a very, very heavy scent of frankincense. It was like going to church fully packed on Easter Sunday morning or Christmas morning. There was frankincense no matter which room I was in, and it was powerful. It got my attention. I knew to steady myself because that's what I heard. Steady yourself. Steady yourself. And what you're going to hear today will not be the truth. Search for the truth. Steady yourself. I left. I went to this woman's place of business. I worked there for a few hours. It's getting to be after the noon hour. I received a phone call. The phone call was from my son in another state. He was so hysterical in his voice. 
I didn't know it was my own son, my own firstborn son. And there was sobbing and there was yelling and there was weeping in the background and there was screaming and there was crying and there was complete despair. And I said, calm yourself. I don't know what you're saying. I cannot understand you and I don't know who you are. He took a deep breath and he said, go home. Everyone's trying to find you. Grandma and Grandpa are dead. At that very moment, I told my son the words that were told to me. Grieve Grandma and Grandpa, yes. But from this second forward, I need to search out the truth because what we're going to be told is not correct. And you must stay out of it. You must let me do this. They are your grandmother and your grandfather. Yes. But they are my mother and my father. It is my place to find out what really happened. The family gathering was in two days. I flew to Chicago with my husband. Everyone else from different directions came. My one brother was in the Marines. They gave him an emergency leave. He joined us a day later. I remember walking into this meeting, and even though my firstborn sister, Diane, is the matriarch of the siblings, the leader of the pack, I always had the position of doing the same, keeping an eye on everything, protecting everyone, making sure no one got into trouble, looking out for everyone, loving them dearly, but also having a word behind scenes if they needed it because my sister had moved out when she was 18 years old. So the rest of the keeping everyone in check fell on my shoulders, which was funny, because I am the shrimp of the litter, but second born. I remember our parents always said when we were little and as we grew up, you need to remember you will always have your brothers and sisters. In and out of your life, you're going to be mad at them one minute and you're going to love them and be happy the next, but they will always be your brothers and sisters. So you need to make up for things that you disagree about. You need to go to sleep and have already cleared the air on an issue that went on between the two of you, whichever two they were. And you need to remember, friends come and friends go, but you will always have us as your parents and you will always have one another. So depend and rely and look out for one another. That was our upbringing. That was my mother and father. So at this meeting, everyone is there but Ronald. He did not yet come in until the next day. Everyone is in attendance, the siblings, my brothers and my sisters. But here comes Daniel Babbage, my youngest brother, the youngest of seven. He's the police chief of Lyons, Illinois, and my youngest brother, their youngest child. 
And he comes in with the most unusual posturing, like a male peacock who just walked into the room and everybody should bow down and consider ourselves blessed that he even showed up. And there was another man behind him. That was Carrasco is his name, Brian Carrasco. Brian works immediately under Daniel Babbage. His only supervisor is his police chief, Daniel Babbage. So that means that Daniel Babbage has an awful lot of control over Brian's raises, whether or not Brian can have extra vacation days, whether Brian is promoted on any level or has the potential of being the next police chief, according to will of, the will of the committee people. There is an unholy relationship and a dictatorship of Daniel Babbage over his subordinate, Brian, from the Lyons, Illinois Police Department. And that's who we were introduced to, Brian. Now, I want you to think about something at this very moment and remember it throughout this case history of the double murder of Walter and Dorothy Babbage. Brian is the immediate subordinate to Dan Police Chief Daniel Babbage. Brian, by Daniel Babbage's authority, is the internal affairs officer for the Lyons, Illinois Police Department. So if a police officer does something wrong, you have to complain to Brian. Who do you complain to when the police chief is suspected of doing something so heinous as to slaughtering his parents? Who do you go to? But Brian is not only the subordinate to police chief Daniel Babbage, and Brian is not only the internal affairs officer in the Lyons, Illinois Police Department, but Brian became the funeral director who had control and custody of my mother and father's bodies and everything that happened to those bodies afterwards. Brian is wearing three different hats, and they all serve Daniel Babbage. So if you don't have a raised eyebrow by now, you ought to. In this meeting, where Brian is to Daniel's right side, Daniel states out loud, remember, Walter and Dorothy Babbage were discovered Sunday afternoon. They were discovered because my sister, the oldest one, the firstborn one, Diane, would call them every single night. She was the mother hen. Make sure they were okay. Make sure they were home safe. See if they needed anything because she could come by the next day and maybe wash the floor for them, do dishes for them. She lived a half hour away in Bolingbrook, Illinois. So it wasn't much of a drive. I lived in New Jersey. My one brother, Ronald, was in the military, so he was everywhere. My sister, Barbara, was in southern Illinois and had a household of people to take care of. My sister, Patty, Patty was murdered, and her murderer is in prison and died in prison. He was her stalker. So I'm accustomed to dealing with this sort of thing. My mother, myself, my sister Diana, my brother Ronald were there 
during the trial of the murder of my sister Patty, the third born in this family. That story is closed. Justice has been served. She rests in peace. Here's my mother and father, murdered at the hands of my baby brother, the Hawaiians, Illinois police chief, and justice needs to be served. And with my last breath, justice will be served. But here's the meeting. And Danny walks in, and it's only two days later, and Danny said, all of you do not have to worry. No, there's no will. There's no will. I didn't find anything. There's no will. There's no paperwork. But Mom and Dad told me, the youngest, by the way, of seven, I should take care of everything if something should happen to them. I'm the police chief, after all. I can get things done quicker than anyone else. So, I already have someone who has been interested for a very long time in purchasing Mom and Dad's home. I already have an attorney who will handle the sale of Mom and Dad's home, which, according to my brother Walter's wife, who was in real estate and her mother is in real estate, was worth $500,000 plus paid, paid for in full by now. Paid for in full. There was no mortgage. And he said, not only do I have someone who's been interested in buying their home for a long time and willing to pay cash, $300,000, by the way, according to him, and an attorney to close the sale of their home to this woman for $300,000. But I have the coin collection that mom and dad saved over the many years, one for each of the children, something that they could put as a deposit on their own homes or to pay for college tuition, whichever we wanted. But each had a coin collection that they established since the birth of the children. He has that entire coin collection, and he said, I already have someone who is an expert in the value of coins and antiques. And in my presence, of course, he will evaluate the coins and we will include that into the final numbers. I found four of the envelopes that Mom had set aside with cash in each of them. But as of yet, I couldn't find the fifth one. He was talking about one envelope with $10,000 cash my mother had in case something should happen to her. It would assist with her burial, her funeral, unpaid medical bills, that sort of thing. There was a second envelope with also $10,000 cash for my father, should the same thing happen to him. She did not want to burden the seven children because they all had children of their own, and she was being a responsible mother and grandmother. And Daddy was being a responsible father and grandfather by having the money already set aside. She had another envelope of cash to pay the monthly bills. It was there. It was ready. It was difficult for both of them to go to the bank and all the other things they needed to do because they were seriously handicapped, both of them. And that one had maybe $800 in it. And there was another with $1,200 in it for emergencies, like if the freezer goes out or the AC unit goes out. That's what that one was for, appliance failure. And as all women, 
do, or at least most of them, she had mad money for herself in the fifth envelope. That's why he could not find the fifth envelope. And that was when she wanted to buy something for dad or for any of the grandchildren or for any of the children, or she just wanted to treat herself to a pretty dress or a pretty hat. That was her, what she called, med money. There was probably about $600 in there. And I know she knew their anniversary was coming up, and she wanted to treat Dad to a wedding anniversary weekend at, at the casinos. They bet the nickel machines. So in the meantime, Daddy, Daniel said, I have the four envelopes. I can't find the fifth, but I will. Now think about it. They have just been discovered on Sunday afternoon. They're in the hands of the coroner later that day because unusual series of circumstances occurred that prevented them from being removed from the home immediately by the medical examiner. And I'll explain that to you in a minute. And then two days later is the family meeting, but Daniel already has someone to buy the home. Daniel already has the lawyer to handle the closing. Daniel has someone to evaluate the coin collection. Daniel has said there is no paperwork whatsoever, and that paperwork is gone, destroyed, doesn't know where it is, whatever the case may be. And then Daniel said, when I asked, where's mom's ring collection? She had a ring for every finger. I know I bought two of them. I had one made. So I can account for three of them. One was a blue sapphire and diamond ring, and it was in uh, a cat's eye shape, and she fell in love with it, and I bought it. That was $18,000, and that was wholesale. So where, where's mom and dad's rings? Well, mom's, there's 10 of them. One was a clatter ring, a man's clatter ring that I had made for her because she had very large hands. And where's the two different diamond rings that each were the shape of a D for Dorothy, one given to her? by Daddy, and one given to her by her very best friend, also Dorothy. Where are all those things? And what he did right then and there was something very, um, to me, I just wanted to slap him. Mom wore a necklace all the time. The chain was from Italy. The cross was from Italy. It was a very large cross and very um, lacy, lacy cross with a crucifix in the center of it. And it was a sizable cross. Very beautiful. Mom had a friend go to Italy for her and pick out a cross and chain for herself and each of her daughters so that they would always remember that she was always going to watch over us whether she was here or not. Mom never took hers off. And Daniel had in the palm of his hand, while I am asking where are those ten cocktail rings, Mom's collection, I heard nothing about the value of the collection since he had everything else tied up, sewed up with a pretty little bow only two days after they were found. Where's those ten cocktail rings? He said, well, I have this jewelry. looks like costume jewelry. And he threw a little, small, tiny pile of stuff, which was a bracelet, look like two bracelets and, and maybe a ring finger, a solid band, but not the wedding band, of course. And mom's necklace, her cross, her chain from Italy, if he only knew what that chain alone was worth and that cross separately was worth. And he 
threw that in front of my sister Barbara, the youngest of the four girls, like it was trash. And he said, here, pick whatever you want. But none of the ten rings were in that pile. None of them. Carmen at that point jumped in, Daniel's wife, and said, and don't worry about their savings account and their checking account. I have two friends. One's a manager of the Riverside Savings Bank in Riverside, Illinois, and her clerk. They have already given us access, access to this account, the accounts of your parents, but only Daniel and myself. No, there's no documentation. No, there's no paperwork. No, there's no will. But they're bypassing all of that because Daniel's the police chief and they know us. And she's a friend of mine. And I said, uh, isn't that illegal? Shouldn't attorneys handle all of this? We've got it taken care of. You don't need to worry about that. Hmm. There was a, one other thing, one other thing. My father had a gun collection from when he was younger. It was shotguns for hunting deer and moose, and he had fishing equipment because he used to like to do that when he could, when he was younger. And this gun collection, which included a few pistols, but it was a complete gun collection. Daddy hadn't used it probably in about 15, 20 years, but they saved it because my mother wanted each of her children and her daughter-in-laws, her daughters and her daughter-in-laws or her granddaughters, to have a ring. There were 10 of them. And that was very important to her. So you will always remember me. You will always feel my presence. You will always remember the wonderful memories. That's why I want you to have it. And my father felt the same way about his gun collection. Whether it was a pistol or a shotgun or a rifle, my son have the first choice. My son-in-laws and my grandson can choose what is left. So they will always have something to remember me by. Use it or not, just have something from me that I loved. Daddy, Walter Babbage Sr., my father, was confined to a wheelchair, 75 years old. He could get around with a great deal of effort and pride made him do so on occasions. He had um, a prosthetic leg. His right leg was amputated from the knee on down. So if he put the leg on, even though it caused him always a great deal of pain, and, but he was going on a date with mom to a restaurant or to their anniversary weekend at the uh, casinos, he would wear his leg. No matter how painful it was, he wanted to look good for mom. So he had this horrible, horrible health issue. On top of, and this is very important, crippling rheumatoid arthritis in both his hands. His hands were so swollen from this disease, he could not open his fingers. He could not. I have a picture where the veins are literally popping out of his hands because that's what rheumatoid arthritis does. It swells your hands, it swells your skin, it swells your muscles, it swells your veins, and cripples closed your fingers. So it's like you always have your fingers in the position of a fist. 
It's only because you can't really open your hands. They don't open anymore. My father had this disease throughout his body, but missing his right leg. My mother had many health issues. My mother, because of her health issues, my mother went from Marilyn Monroe figure and beauty to a 400-pound woman who could not walk unless she shuffled very, very slowly like a turtle, one foot shuffling a few inches and then another. But to get something prepared from my father, to get him a snack or a cup of coffee, she would gladly and painfully shuffle to get him his coffee or something to eat because she loved him so as he loved her. And now they're both dead during their wedding anniversary weekend. They're not just dead. They've been made to suffer excruciating death, according to the medical examiner. But we need to back up a little bit. When they were pulled out of the building, their home, on Riverside Drive in McCook, Illinois, the local police from the McCook Police Department, only a block and a half away, a block and a half away, were not on duty, were not called. Diane, my oldest sister, who normally calls them every night, did not get a return phone call, but she remembered. Probably they were tired and they went to bed because they were going out to the casino to bet the $5 machine and then come home. Each one would spend $20 and that was it. But they would enjoy a nice meal there and they would enjoy a show. And then they would take public transportation to get home to the car in the lot and then drive home the rest of the way. So Diana was a little worried that they did not pick up the phone, but remember that was their time to go out Saturday evening. Anniversary weekend, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And then the following morning, Sunday morning, Diana called and didn't get an answer. She called my brother, Walter, who was on a roof at that time. He owns roofing companies. And he said, I'll go over and check because he was only 15 minutes away. So when he went to check and then get back to Diane, that they were okay or they were still sleeping or they were having coffee and didn't answer the phone, didn't hear the phone, couldn't get to the phone quick enough, whatever, he would reach out to her and let her know so she would be peaceful. He looked in the front door. There are the windows right to the left of it. He couldn't really see anything. He's banging on the door. The car is always in the garage, so that's not going to help him. So he's banging and banging and banging, and he knows at this point nobody's getting returned phone calls. Something's wrong. Because he's a roofer, he has always been built like Hercules. He lifts shingles off his back. He doesn't use mechanical equipment. He uses his body and his muscles. He's very strong. He went to the side door of the garage because that would be the easiest to repair if he had to break it in. And at this point, he felt he had to break it in. But he called Daniel Babbage, the youngest, who was a police chief who could come and go whenever he wanted to, because he was a police chief, and said, listen, something's wrong at mom and dad's house. I can't get in. They're not responding. They didn't answer Diane's call from the evening before. They're not answering my call. I think something's wrong. Do you have a key to mom and dad's house? I thought you had a key. Nope. Oh, okay. 
So Daniel stepped aside from that little door leading into the garage, because then there was another door from the garage into the kitchen. And Daniel, stepping aside and denying that he had a key to our parents' home, Walter did the next best thing. He poked a hole, literally punched a hole, to the handle area and unlocked the door so he could open it. He said he punched that hole through with his fist to get that door unlocked. And then he and Daniel, but he was first, Daniel was second. That's important. He made sure Walter went through that second door first. And Walter discovered our father in his recliner, right as you're looking at our father in the recliner, to the left is his wheelchair. Behind the wheelchair, but within reach, is one of those grabbers that you can get a box of cereal if you need it or a jar and you just can't quite reach. That was there because that aided him in being able to grab some bigger items since he could not open his hands. He could slip his hand in the bottom and squeeze gently and get what he needed for mom or for himself. The grabber was there. But then there was a shotgun. There were actually two of them neatly placed alongside my father's right hand on the floor. Neatly placed. The medical examiner, when she was able to finally look at my mother and father, discovered that what she originally thought, two shotguns in the crime scene photos, two, looking at the damage to my mother's back right shoulder area, just below her neckline, that whole quarter section, shoulder blade, shoulder, all of that. She saw so much blood, she thought, what Daniel said to everyone, Dad killed Mom and then himself. Daniel's words when his own police officers showed up on the scene first out of jurisdiction because they were from Lyons, Illinois, 17 to 20 minutes away. And Daniel made sure that the local authorities were not called. They're a block and a half away. Danny knew that. He'd been over there several times on other occasions. He knew the police chief, Wolf, W-O-L-F-E. They knew one another. They had meetings for what they can do for the community, that sort of thing. So Daniel knew the local police who had jurisdiction were only a block and a half away. Why then did he call his own police department over and the emergency teams from his own township? And when they arrived, and everybody's wondering what on earth has happened, do we need ambulances? Yes, they were already there. Daniel said, my mom was killed by my father, and then my father committed suicide. Ladies and gentlemen, please listen to me. The murderer is telling his own police officers, what happened, but he's blaming it on Dad. He can't say, I killed Mom and I killed Dad. He can't say that. But because he's the police chief, who is not going to believe a grieving police chief who just supposedly discovered his parents were found dead and Dad did it to Mom and then himself? Nobody questioned this police chief 
who I will tell you, I will bet my life and soul on, is the murderer of my mother and my father. And you can't hear this whole story and not come to the same conclusion. If you go to John Benet's, J-O-N-B-E-N-E-T-S, truecasehistory.net, to the far right of the menu bar is Shattered Shields, Babbage Homicide, B-A-B, I-C-H, homicides, there's two of them, you will see the entire story of beginning to end of what I'm telling you now. And I name names as to who's helping him cover up the double homicide by him of our parents. So now, Walter is there. Walter discovers. Dad is in his chair. There's blood everywhere, but centered in the abdomen area, chest area. Walter races to find out where his mom. She's on the mattress. She's covered in blood. The back, the back of her, she was face down on the mattress. But two things I find highly suspicious from the very get-go. A, he called out-of-jurisdiction police his own that are loyal to him, not the ones that were a block and a half away. Please remember that. He lied about having a key. He did have a key, and he was the only sibling of seven who had a key to my mother and father's home. Why would you lie to anybody, to Walter, your own brother? Well, we knew you had a key, but Walter was in a state of panic, so he didn't remember that. Why would you lie to your own police department, and why would you lie to the McCook, who has jurisdiction, police department, since that's where mom and dad lived, in McCook, Illinois. They had jurisdiction. And because there are seven adult children, now six, because Patty was already murdered, justice was served, so they're six. Why would those six children not be considered suspects? Isn't that what the norm is? When parents are killed, like in the Menendez case in Florida, the boys, the two adult boys, the brothers, were suspects until they were cleared. And they almost got away with it, but one reporter was suspicious. One reporter said, eh, I smell a rat. Let me follow these two punks around. He followed them around to buying very expensive, expensive watches, Rolexes, each of them. He followed them around. They bought new clothes. They bought new cars. There was no sense of grieving whatsoever. There was not even that drunken grieving that people do when they're going through a tragedy and they just drink themselves into oblivion. There was none of that. There was laughing. There was partying. There was girls coming and going. And he said to himself, they did it. And he researched and he investigated this one reporter until there was enough circumstantial evidence to shove it down the throat of the local police that would have let them get away with a double murder of their parents. And the circus continued after that. But that one reporter got enough information that the case had to be looked at through different eyes, eyes that can see clearly. Well, in that same respect, Daniel Babbage is telling everybody and setting the stage for Dad did this to mom and then himself. Danny lied about having a key. Daddy had, Daniel had his own loyal police officers there, including Karatko, Brian Karatko, next one in line to be the police chief. His only supervisor is Daniel Babbage. He's also the internal affairs officer of the Lyons, Illinois Police Department and the funeral director for my mother and father. Never forget that. This man is wearing three hats. That should have never been allowed. But Daniel 
is telling my brother Walter he didn't have a key, so Walter's forced to be the first one on the scene. The first one on the scene of any murder investigation is the one they look at the most. Daniel made sure it was Walter Jr. To this day, Walter does not realize what that little action on Daniel's part could have done, put Walter in prison. If the police wanted to blame somebody. But Walter was up on a roof when this took place. He had plenty of witnesses. But what about the police chief who can come and go anytime he wants to? What about him? Who didn't call in the local police a block and a half away? What about that? So now an internal affairs officer from the local police, McCook, Illinois, was guided to be in plain clothes. So nobody really knew who he was was asking some very important questions. Someone turned the gas on in the house full blast by blowing out the pilot light. And that someone was buying extra time so that no one could get into the house right away, not for hours, until the entire house that was filled with this gas because the pilot, ha pilot light had been intentionally blown out could be cleared. They had to open the windows pry them open, open all the doors, let Mother Nature take care of it with wind and such to clear the house so nobody would be in harm's way. So someone delayed assistance, even from the local police, for hours. Medical examiner couldn't go in there until the house was cleared. That same someone, when asked by this plainclothes internal affairs officer from McCook, Illinois, asked Daniel Babbage, direct question, because now Diana is there waiting, oh, my God, where's my mom and dad? Oh, my God, are they alive? Are they dead? Do I have one parent? Do I have two? Do I have none? And she's hysterical. She's the firstborn. She was their caregiver. Walter is there to help Diane deal with this tragedy. And he doesn't even know other than they're both dead and he was hurried up and rushed out of the house so as to not further contaminate things. He was rushed out of the house by the murderer, Daniel Babbage. Don't that beat all? But Daniel can clearly say, Walter discovered the bodies, not Daniel, because that would raise some more eyebrows against Daniel. So Walter is comforting his sister. But Daniel's there kind of staying a safe distance away from my sister because my sister Diane's not stupid. Sooner or later, she would have sensed something was wrong here. But in her pain... She could not. Well, I wasn't there. I wasn't there. I was in a safe zone of I was able to see things clearly. Thank you, God, because I wasn't there. I was in New Jersey. And I'm being filtered information. And all the time I'm thinking while I'm being told from all of these aunts and uncles and, and people trying to comfort the siblings, I'm being told one thing. Nobody had a key. Daniel didn't have a key. The house was filled with gas. Didn't Daniel have a key? Yes, he did. Why would he lie about it? I have learned over my many years of doing this, 30 years, since the death of my sister and the death of my parents and the JonBenet and a few other things I've got my hands involved in, I have learned when one person tells the first lie, no matter how little that first lie is, you cannot believe anything else that person will tell you because of that first lie. So Daniel's first lie was, I don't have a key to our family's home, our parents' home. Yes, he did, and I'll tell you why he had a key and why no one else had a key. Mom and Dad were 
accustomed to whoever visited because of mom and dad's health issues. It takes them a while to get to the door. We would have to call them and say, hi, Linda here. I'm on my way over. Tom and I and the kids are coming to spend a couple of days with you over Easter. Diana would call and say, I'm going to be there in 20 minutes. Is that okay? I want to wash your floor. I want to do the dishes. I want to take you out to eat. Barbara was coming from Southern Illinois, Illinois, hours away, the youngest of the girls, and she would have to do the same. And she would hardly visit because she was always busy doing one thing or another for her own family. Ronnie was in the military, and Walter was always on roofs, but he would visit them with one phone call. My mother would say, I was having a taste for an apple pie, and I'll remember, I remember this. He got off a roof, but he should have closed it because it was a large construction site. He should have closed that roof first. But mom called and said, I have such a taste for an apple pie, and dad probably would like cherry. He climbed off that roof. He left his men in charge to continue doing what he was doing. He went and found the store open. This was late at night, so he probably went to the local 7-Eleven. And he got my mother a cherry pie and my father an apple pie because my mother asked for it. And he loved them so much as if he'd become their lifeline instead of the other way around. And he brought it to the door, and he was smirking. And he thought it was funny that she made sure she had her taste taken care of with the apple pie, but she also made sure he didn't forget Dad with the cherry pie. And he says, okay, i got to get back on the roof. She says, oh, you got off a roof just to get us pies? He says, I would do anything for you. I love you. And then he left to go back on the roof. This is the one that was laid to be blamed if Daniel had his way for being the first on scene. So let's look at him closely. But the internal affairs officer, going back to that terrible day when they're still inside because there's still gas inside the building, Diana noticed that Daniel wouldn't come anywhere near her. In her wailing of pain, she did notice that. That was odd. Walter had his arms wrapped around her. Walter kept her from running in the building by literally picking her up and bringing her to his vehicle and then finally locking her in the vehicle because Daniel's police officers were going to arrest my sister, Diane, the firstborn, if they went in that building, if she went in that building. They said, we're going to arrest you. It's a crime scene. Oh, really? Daniel already told you Dad killed Mom and then himself. Where's the crime scene? Double, what, murder-suicide? They're both dead? Who are you going to talk to? When Daniel's officers told Diane she was going to be arrested if she stepped one foot in that building, and not to mention the fact that it was filled with gas, but she didn't realize that. She was locked in the car in my brother's car, and he wouldn't let her out. And she wailed. Now comes the McCook police, but this internal affairs officer is smart, real smart. His level of tenacity needs to be questioned, but he's smart. And he said, hey, Daniel. He knew, he knew. When his officers weren't called and that police department is a block and a half away, but you call your own cops, there's something wrong. I smell a rat. Hey, Daniel. He wouldn't call him police chief Daniel Babbage. Oh, no. He treated Daniel like he would treat any of the siblings as suspects until our alibis were cleared. Hey, Daniel. You got a key to your parents' home? And Danny wouldn't answer. Danny walked away. And he said, hey, Daniel, I'm talking to you. Do you have a key to your mother and father's home? And Daniel continued walking away. And finally, the internal affairs officer for the McCook 
police department who had jurisdiction said at the top of his lungs, don't let me find out you have a key to your mother and father's home. Right from the beginning, he didn't trust Daniel. He felt like there's more to the story. And Daniel continued to walk away. And as he's walking away the third time, he simply yelled out, no, I don't. No one did. That's not true. Why did Daniel have a key to mom and dad's home? We already know he lied. But why did he have a key? Mom and dad, because of their very, very serious health issues, would work in the lower level. People would call it a basement. They just called it the lower level. But there were about 15 to 18 steps, very narrow steps, to get from the main level of their single-family home to what I would call the basement. And mom would work on flower arrangements, making pretty gifts for the neighbors. Dad would just clean the tools. You would take a rag with oil and just push it around. He wasn't cleaning the tools. He couldn't clean the tools. His hands were sealed shut because of the crippling rheumatoid arthritis. He wasn't doing that. He was keeping mom company. He wanted to be where she was. That is a love you don't see anymore. That is a love that says, I just want to make sure you're okay. But there was no bathroom downstairs. Mom realized it was very difficult for Dad to get up and down those stairs with his one leg. The artificial leg helped him, but it was painful when he used it. So Mom said to Daniel, the youngest of seven, you're a police chief. You can come and go as you please. Walter can't. Ronnie's in the military. Diana certainly can't. Well, Linda and her family's in New Jersey. Patty's deceased. Would you build us a small bathroom? Just a small bathroom, a little toilet little walk-in shower if we need it. What she meant was if we have an accident, we need to go to the bathroom and then we need to step in the shower and rinse off and get clean clothes. That's why the little shower was so important. But she didn't tell him that. She just said, would you just please toilet and a little shower? That's all we need. Could you do that? Daniel said, be happy to, but I need you to pay for the material and then I need you to pay for my labor. I hope at this moment in time every one of you are dropping your jaws. Because if my mother ever asked me to do anything, I would pay for the material, I would pay for the labor, I would hire the very best contractors I could to get the job done as fast as possible for them. But as their child that they brought into this world, and oh, by the way, could take out if they, they felt the need to, but as their child, as an adult child who had my own income, as Daniel does, his wife is a nurse, he's a police chief, with all the other things he does for extra income. And he dare say to mom and dad, you don't do it. You pay for the material. You pay for my labor, and I'll build it. But I need a key to come and go as I please so that I can turn around and build it at my leisure and not have to worry whether you're home or not. Dad said that's reasonable. No one else has a key because they always call us first. So there's never been a need to give anyone else a key. It's not a matter of trust or not trust. It's a matter of they know, call first, because we might be over at the five nickel and dime machine at the casino, or we might be out for a meal. So Danny was given a key. Danny started the job. Mom and Dad paid for all the material that was delivered. They paid Daniel for that material. They paid Daniel up front for the labor to do the job. He pretty much said, it's going to take blah, 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 and this is how much I need. 
But my mother was hurt. My father was angry, but my mother was hurt. There's a difference in how a mother sees things and how a father sees things. Dad was like, what the hell? We didn't turn around and spend enough money on you throughout your entire life. He was angry. It was a father's pride. But my mom, mom was hurt. Why would you charge us for labor when anytime you call, we would babysit? Anytime you were low on groceries, we would buy groceries. We would surprise you with things. We would buy you gifts for all occasions, and I would make flower arrangements for your entire household and never charge a penny. And for your friends, because you said you needed something, go pick out something I've already made. But you charge me labor, and I'm your mother? My mother was so hurt, because you're asking, why would a son kill his mother and father and in such a heinous way? I'm answering you, because my mother dare call all her friends and her sister, Auntie Catherine Kay, her friend, for many, many, many years, and Auntie Grace, my mom's friend, since we were three years old. She called them up because she wanted to see if maybe she was just being a little, I don't know, short-sighted in her feelings. So she said, I asked my son to build a small toilet, small room, just to frame it out, put a toilet in there, put a little shower. So if we have an accident, we can go rinse off, change clothes, because the laundry was down there as well. And he wants to charge us labor. I understand material. I absolutely get that. Maybe he's running low in money. I don't know. Sounds like he is. But to charge your own parents for labor, I find that very offensive. Am I wrong in feeling that way? My own mother's sister, Auntie Catherine, said, absolutely not. I would find that offensive. My children would build it and pay for everything. My mom's two best friends, Kay and Grace, said the same thing. You are not wrong in feeling hurt. You are not wrong in feeling offended. So maybe tell Daniel how you're feeling. Well, she did. He was more angry that she told Aunt Catherine, she told Grace, she told Kay, my son is taking money for labor, and I don't understand that. Because now, what did my mother do that was such a big sin in Daniel's eyes? She shamed the male peacock. She shamed him in his eyes. In her eyes, she was just saying, am I being unreasonable? to these three other women who she's very close to. They said no, they would feel the same way. Because she shamed him, that was strike one. That was strike one. Another time I found out during the investigation over the last 14 years, Daniel went to my mother and father and asked for a deposit, money, to buy a house. I always thought the house he lived in with his mother-in-law and his wife, I always thought it was his house. It wasn't. It belonged to his mother-in-law. And because my brother, Walter, bought a very beautiful home, probably worth about six, dollars $700,000, beautiful home, multiple levels, multiple rooms, multiple bedrooms, absolutely fantastic home. Daniel, not to be outdone by his older brother, felt it was time for he and his wife and their two daughters to have their own home because he hated the aggressive nature of his mother-in-law, and they were living under her roof. And that nature spilled over from his wife being aggressive with Daniel. So he basically had, in his own words, two queen bees always bossing him around and he had no peace from it. 
So when he went to mom and dad and said, would you please give me money so that I can turn around and get my own home, they didn't have it. So they said, no, that's strike two. As far as he's concerned, they did have it. Your house is paid for. You're wearing 10 cocktail rings on your hand. One of them is $18,000. The other one looks like it's about twelve dollars or $16,000. Uh, why don't you have it? You could hack those cocktail rings to get me what I need. Mom and dad said, no, we don't have it. They were on a fixed income. These gifts were from other people. He didn't want to hear none of that. So that's strike two. Here comes strike three. And this is the one that was the nail in their coffin. He had been so fed up with these two aggressive women bossing him around, yelling at him, ordering him about this male peacock, that he had had enough. He wanted to raise his own two children the rest of their lives himself. So he went to my mother and father and he said, will you two help me get a divorce from my wife, Carmen, so that I can have full custody of my two little girls? And my mother and father said, no. Go see a priest. Go get a counselor, a professional counselor to help you. Talk to several priests. Find the right person who will help you. We're Catholic. And my mom said, I wish we could help you in any other way, but we will not. We will not lift one finger to help you divorce a mother who's very good to those children and she's very good to you and she's a good mother and the mother-in-law who is very good for you and has made sure you had a roof over your head and we don't see that they're doing anything wrong except being big mouths. So what? We are all big mouths. Get over it. Daniel at that moment felt betrayed by my mother and father when they said no. When they said no, my mother and father put themselves in a whole different category for Daniel Babbage. Their new category is, you are worse than my wife and my mother-in-law because I'm your son, blood of blood. You should help me no matter what. Whether you agree with me or not, you should help me and you're not. I hate you more than them. And that was the nail in my mother and father's coffin. He stopped talking to them. And I thought it was for six months or so, according to my sister Diane. It was for years. They were an estranged family relationship. Carmen, Daniel stayed away from mom and dad. Carmen, Daniel didn't talk to mom and dad. There were no communications. But all of a sudden... During my mother and father's upcoming wedding anniversary weekend, my mother received a phone call from Daniel. And that phone call was like the inquisition of inquisitions. What are you doing during your wedding anniversary weekend? He knew it was their wedding anniversary weekend. What are you doing on Friday? When are you coming? When are you going? Who are you going with? Do you expect anybody to come and be with you? What are you doing on Saturday? Oh, you're going to the casino. Is Kay going with you? Is she going to meet you? What time do you expect to be back? And what are you doing on Sunday? Is Tom and Lynn coming in from New Jersey? Are they going to spend any time with you? Do you expect company? And my mother said that during the entire conversation where she was answering his questions of third degree on the Friday, Saturday, and Sunday activities, just between husband and wife, my mom said, no, it's just Dad and I for Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. We have our own plans. We're going to get up and go for breakfast on Friday, and we're going to go out to eat at the casinos on Saturday, and I'm treating Daddy to lunch on Sunday, or he's treating me to lunch on Sunday. Uh, nobody can come 
because they all have lives and they just can't be here. This is a husband and wife thing, wedding anniversary weekend. And she remembered feeling sick to her stomach when she hung up to this inquisition of inquisitions about what they were going to do Friday, Saturday, and Sunday during their wedding anniversary weekend by a son who hadn't communicated with them in years. So she called up Grace and she said to her friend for many, many years, I just got a call from Daniel, and she explained everything, and Grace said, you know what, I'm not feeling right about this either. I'm feeling like something's wrong, like something's about to happen, a tragedy. And my mom concurred. So my mom called everybody else and said the same thing. It just something's not right about that phone call. And then they were found dead. Someone sat on my mother, who was, by the way, totally unclothed, my mother. And yet, my father was fully clothed, shoes, shirt, belt, pants, in the recliner. But my mother was totally unclothed, as if she was taking a shower and was preparing for bed. And Dad probably said, I'm not ready to sleep yet. So he would take a shower next whenever he felt like it and then go to bed whenever he felt like it. But he stayed in that recliner. He, too, must have felt uncomfortable about that phone call because he was fully clothed watching the door. Something in his spirit told him something's very wrong. So as my mother laid unclothed, face down, on the mattress, Someone sat on top of her, used their weight to keep her from moving while they stabbed her not once, not twice, not 10 times or 12 or 30. I've heard someone stabbed 36 times. She was stabbed 63 times in her shoulder blade area, just below the neck, from the shoulder where the arm is attached, halfway across and halfway down. That whole square, that whole one square area was 60 three stab wounds. But they weren't deep stab wounds. Oh, no, 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 ladies and gentlemen, they were not. Someone used a paring knife, a very small, very, very, very old paring knife, which is jagged on both ends. It's serrated on both ends, which belonged to my grandfather, my father's father, Walter Babbage Sr.'s father, who lived with us, had been deceased a long time. That knife, the entire family knew was a part of Grandpa still being with us. And that was in a drawer, but there were butcher knives in that same drawer. There were steak knives. There were all kinds of knives. Only the family would know that that particular small, double-serrated edge knife belonged to Grandpa on Walter's side. And that was used to do shallow cuts into her flesh so that there would be tearing and there would be pain, but there would not be death until the person who wielded the weapon wanted his victim to die. That took 63 stab wounds, 63. But there was so much damage to that section of Dorothy's back, my mother's back, that for first appearances, the blood coagulating everywhere, but centered in that area, it would look as though it was a shock 
shotgun wound because two shotguns were found near my father, one to the right side, one a little to the left. That led everyone to believe that my father, according to what Daniel said, dad killed mom and then himself, that would lead everyone to believe that dad used the one shotgun on mom, who was all the way across the home into a bedroom, and then come back, sit in the recliner, and use the second shotgun on himself. These are two old full barrel shotguns, and they have trigger guards. If you're police officers, any of you, if you are hunters, any of you who are listening, you will know how important it is to know that these two shotguns had trigger guards. Why is that important? The medical examiner and everybody else was told by Daniel Babbage, the murderer, dad shot mom and, no, dad killed mom and then himself. Killed mom. Because Danny is the only one that knows that there are 63 stab wounds by a small paring knife. Danny's the only one who knew that. Everyone else assumed by what their eyes told them, one shotgun was used by dad, supposedly, against mom, and then he killed himself with a second shotgun. But there's a problem with that lie. How does a man missing his right leg pull the trigger or push the trigger to shoot himself in his own abdomen with a full barrel shotgun? How does he do that? He can't use his hands because they're crippled shut. He can't use that trigger, that um, grabber that's behind him in the photos that you use to get a box of cereal. He can't use that. Why? A, his hands are shut for the most part. And B, more importantly, there's a trigger guard. You cannot get any of those two grips on that hand gripper past the trigger guard. You can't. Oh, by the way, did he use his toes? Well, he couldn't have. He didn't have a leg, therefore he didn't have toes. How did this man, 75 years old, crippling rheumatoid arthritis, pain from head to toe, plenty of doctor reports, plenty of medicines to prove that, how did he commit suicide by shooting himself with a full barrel shotgun? He didn't even have his right leg. How did he do that? Oh, by the way, did I tell you? He wasn't shot once but twice. Twice in his abdomen. How did he shoot himself once, let alone twice? Someone stood in front of him. Someone used the shotgun. Someone shot him once when he's trying to get out to go to his wife. He was shot again a second time. That person is the murderer of Walter Babbage. That person is the murderer of Dorothy Babbage. That person knows how to use weapons. That person knows how to carve fish and get the scales off and not harm any of the meat. That's all Daniel Babbage. That's who we're talking about, their youngest son, just like the Menendez brothers. So the medical examiner has Daniel in there and out of there with other police officers while she's trying to do her work, kind of asking questions and being nosy, Daniel covering his rear end. And the medical examiner started the autopsy for my mother, Dorothy, at 9.20 a.m. on Monday morning, 9.20. My father's was done in the afternoon. They mark the upper right-hand page of the initial report, the first page, to know exactly when they start. They look at the clock. Just like when they report time of death, it must be exact because it tells them how to check alibis for one. So in the meantime, 
Daniel's in and out. The fellow police officers from both towns are in and out, asking questions, arguing amongst themselves. She's doing an autopsy. She received a phone call from my sister, Diane, my firstborn sister, who wanted to know what happened to mom and dad. She couldn't return the phone call because she was working on mom and then dad, but when she was finished, she would return the phone call because then she would have an answer to the many questions we had. But Diane was the mouthpiece for everyone's questions. So Diane left the message. Diane was told she'll call you back when she's done with autopsy reports. There's nothing that can be done now. Diane received a phone call. This is the most important thing I can ever tell you. Diane received a phone call that Monday at 9 a.m. sharp. Diane's a very strong woman like I am. And Diane said, I can't do anything at home. I can't wait. I'm by myself. There's no one to comfort me. I, I'm just going to go to work and do my job. And while I'm at work doing my job, the time will pass quicker for me to wait for that phone call from this woman who said, I'm going to be here for hours. I'll call you this evening. So Diana's getting ready for work. The phone rings at 9 a.m. sharp. Diana happened to look at the time to see if she should even answer it because she has to get to work. And she remembered it was 9 o'clock sharp, so she had a few minutes. It was Daniel Babbage. Hi, this is Dan. Yeah. I want you to know something so you're not hysterical when you find out later. What is it? Mom was stabbed 63 times. Dad was shot twice with a shotgun. My sister was silent. My sister remembered every word. And then Daniel said, don't tell anyone I told you this information because I could get into a lot of trouble. Diana said, I got to let you go. I'm getting ready for work. What she was really going to do is not only continue to get ready for work, but to call the medical examiner for confirmation because everybody outside my mom's building while they were being taken out, were told at face value, dad shot mom with a shotgun and then himself with the second shotgun because there were two shotguns. So they assumed that's what happened. And Daniel said, dad killed mom and then himself. The murderer said that. So they all started with that in mind. The medical examiner returned the phone call, as she promised, when she was finished with Dad. And she said, first, ask your question, and I will answer as best as possible. And by the way, I am so sorry for the loss of your family. And Diane said, well, is it true? Is it true? Remember, Diane's the one asking what the medical examiner has already discovered. But nobody knows but her and the killer. So Diane said, is it true? Michelle Jordan was her name. Is it true that my mother was stabbed 63 times? Is it true that my father was shot twice in the abdomen with a full barrel shotgun? Is it true? And she's now speechless. And she said, wait a minute. I'll be right back. Don't go anywhere. 
And my sister heard, Diane heard the running of this woman to the file cabinet, heard the file cabinet be forced open and slammed shut, and heard the woman running back to the phone. And this medical examiner asked a very important question. Tell me, Diane, who told you and when did they tell you that your mother was stabbed 63 times and your father was shot not once but twice in the abdomen with a full-barrel shotgun? Who gave you that information that only I and the murderer would know? My brother Daniel called me up at 9 a.m. What time did, she, did he call you? Are you sure it was 9 a.m.? Maybe it was 9.20. Maybe it was 10.20. Are you sure it was 9 a.m.? How are you so sure? That's easy. I looked at the clock. I was getting ready for work. I didn't want to be late, but I wanted to hear what he had to say. It was 9 o'clock sharp. Then you should remember something. You were told that your mother was stabbed 63 times and you were told that your father was shot twice in the abdomen with a full barrel shotgun. That is information that only two people would know. The murderer would know it first and I, the medical examiner, would know it second. But you were told something at 9 a.m. that I myself didn't even know to well after well after 9.20 a.m. because in the upper right-hand corner of my document, it will tell you 9.20. She was trying to make Diane remember in the upper right-hand corner, 9.20. That means she was brought to me and I started washing her at 9.20 and thinking this is a shotgun wound because there's so much damage and it wasn't until I removed all of the blood, dried blood, that I realized, oh, my God, these are stab wounds. And then she realized they were shallow intentionally to cause harm and pain, but not death. Melinda? Yes. This is a hard one to digest. I know it especially for, for yourself and your family. I just saw my mother drove, drive by, and I was telling my husband uh, either this morning or last night that uh, there's been times in the past that I still have my mother, but I've thought about I could start crying just thinking about losing her and being that close. So I have a question for you a little bit more direct right now. What happened with Michelle Jordan, with the McCook, um, you know, the lady who was examining all this and knowing that she was already saying the murderer and I are the only ones that would know this, what did she do with this information and how come there's not justice yet? Uh, that's an easy question, actually. Um, a very easy question and common sense. I spoke to her myself. She's a very young woman. 
very young. And she's a very frightened woman who realized very quickly that if the police chief, who was in and out constantly, and so was his uh, right-hand person, Brian, with questions, as well as jurisdiction-wise, McCook Police Department staff members, she real and the fighting that was going on between the Lions police officers and the McCook in her in her office in her examining room because apparently yes. by then they they messed up. She became very very frightened that if and this was the question in her mind, if you could do this to your own mother and your own father, what would you do to me to silence to silence me? Self preservation is why what she did was the most that she could do in good conscience. Tell Diane what Diane needs to know, that only the murderer and I would know information. And I didn't know until well after the autopsy because I had to count each and every stab wound, and I counted 63. She said something else, which leads to the John Benet Ramsey case. She said, that number 63 is very important. I don't know why it's important. I do know that sooner or later, that number 63 is going to nail the murderer. So find out why that number is so important, and then you will be able to track back with all the other information to the murderer and get justice for your family. She also did another thing for us. She kept my father's autopsy report opened for an extra six weeks. What she was trying to do is to give Diane and I time to talk to the police chief in McCook, which was Wolf, to talk to Browder, investigator Browder, and tell them Danny lied about the key, Danny called in his own police department out of jurisdiction rather than the ones a block and a half away, Danny was angry with them for them not cooperating with the divorce. Danny was angry with them because they didn't give the money when he needed the money to buy a new home and get away from the mother-in-law. And Danny was especially angry because my mother shamed him to the family members by saying, Danny said he would build me this bathroom. Danny was given a key. Danny wanted reimbursement for material and labor, and it was the labor that upset my mother. So that's three strikes. You're out. They were out. And that medical examiner said, the number 63, sooner or later, when you find out why it is important, will lead you through, through to justice for your parents. But you have to remember something else. I have great empathy and respect for this very young woman because, number one, she didn't have to tell my sister how to prove the case later on, but she did. She risked her well-being. She not only did that, but she told us what to look for in the autopsy report if this ever gets to trial, the fact that she didn't even wash my mother till 9.20 a.m., but Daniel made that call at 9 a.m. Daniel made a mistake. All killers are caught because they make a mistake. What was that mistake? Daniel forgot phone records are traceable. No matter how far back you have to go, he made that phone call to my mother about your uh, anniversary weekend. That can be proven. She received the phone call. He made the phone call. When there was no phone calls for years before that, but there was that phone call. So that was premeditated murder. 
plain and simple. But the fact that Daniel lied about the key and was angry about all the other things and made that phone call at 9 a.m., which is once again traceable, just like that other phone call, can lead back to Daniel is the only person that could have killed mom and dad. But it goes beyond that. It goes beyond that. Months, months earlier, around Easter, Daniel said to my mother, you should really let me have the entire gun collection. I will put it in with mine under lock and key because he had two young daughters. You should let me have it. I will keep it safe. And if ever the time comes, I will distribute it to whoever wants whichever ones they want. No, that part wasn't true. He always wanted Dad's entire gun collection. He's all about everything that is his or that he thinks ought to be his. Mom really was reluctant about it. But Mom finally said yes. My father, because of the different medicines that he took, had a breakdown. And my father just walked out the door during the same time period, just walked out the door. He went to the zoo, Brookfield Zoo. He stayed at the Brookfield Zoo. But he had some bags of things, and they cut into his skin, which caused blood. And so it was alarming when all the neighbors and police were looking for him because he'd wandered away. He's 75 years old. He is on a boatload of different medicines for the crippling rheumatoid arthritis, for the pain, and for the other issues that came up, the other health issues, Alzheimer. They said you have the beginning of Alzheimer. So sometimes he would drift in and out of consciousness, which is part of why he just wandered away. And he went to the local zoo. He loved the zoo, especially when we were younger, and he would take us there all the time. That's where they found him. So Daniel used that episode as an excuse to take all the weapons out and bring them into his home because if somebody ever broke into the house, the very weapons you have in the house can be used against you. And if any of the, the neighborhood was changing also. So if anybody else would find out that you had these weapons, they would break in just to get the weapons. And whatever happened to you was a, oh, well. So he finally convinced my mom, for the safety of both of them, let me have all the weapons. This was April. This is Easter, before the murders. Danny had every single part of the weapons, every single piece of them. Rifle, shotgun, didn't matter. Pistol, he had them all. My sister, thank God, was there that weekend that Danny decided to come and collect them. As soon as she said yes, he didn't waste any time. So he pulled up in front of my mother's house, my father's house, with his squad car, his police chief squad car from Lacey Township. But he was in McCook. So McCook police, if they wanted to question something, they could. But he's in his police chief uniform. He's in his police chief car from another town. So who's going to really question him? as to what he's doing there. But he had the trunk wide open. And he went in three different times and collected all of the shotguns and put them in his car. Some were in cases. Some didn't have cases, so he wrapped them in a blanket. So nobody neighbor-wise would see what he was putting in the trunk of his car. And then all the pistols, he did the same thing. He just put them in a blanket, closed the blanket, put that blanket in the trunk of his car, found the cartridges for all of that and the bullets and put it in the trunk of his car. My mother was there at that time when he did this, and so was my sister Diane. Diane was helping my mom and dad clean the house, wash the floor, and dust. Danny asked my mom the third trip in front of my sister Diane, who saw everything. 
are there any guns anywhere else in the house? She said, no, you have them all. They were all in one spot in the very left back corner of his closet where his clothes are behind his old work clothes for when he used to work. We've always kept them there. We use the work clothes to hide them. You have them all. What are you going to do with them, Daniel? My mother asked. Are you going to give them to the police department and then nobody will ever have an heirloom from their father? No, no, I told you. I'm going to take them to my house. I'm going to put them under lock and key. Well, you have to. You have two little children. I want them safe. And she said, no. He said, no, I'm going to put them under lock and key. As I have my own gun collection, I will keep Dad's gun collection in my home under lock and key, and I will not be handing any over to the police. They don't need it. I'm a police chief. I am a police officer. It's going to be okay. Mom says, well, you remember, they used to be, and were supposed to be heirlooms from Dad for your brother's and grandson, our grandson. You do remember that, right? She was just making a point. And he said, yeah. Diana watched him leave, close the trunk, pull away. There was not one weapon left. He made sure of it. Shotgun or pistol. Not one. So here's the magic question. How then, on their wedding anniversary weekend, how then, did two of those shotguns, seven months later, seven months later, get returned back into mom and dad's house to be used against my father? My father was shot with his own guns. He didn't have them, though. So I called up the FBI in Illinois, and I said to a gentleman, uh, I have suspicion. Um, as a matter of fact, I'm just going to say it. I believe my brother killed my mother and father, just like the Menendez brothers. And he said to me without hesitation, he said, listen, I'm aware of that case. You don't know who I am. I do know who you are, but you don't know who I am. And if asked, I'll deny that this conversation took place. Boy, your brother has people protecting him. And I don't mean just a governor from Illinois. I mean multiple governors. You really need to know who the enemy of truth is. Melinda? And, yes? And I will give you guidance. Wow. Continue until this is solved rightly. Continue to put the information about your parents out into the public. It will be the public that will demand justice for your mother and father. It will not be the authority. And he said, if I am ever asked, I will deny that we had this conversation. But I never forgot that he said multiple governors, meaning my state and his state. So I contacted the governor at the time, and then I contacted the one after him, and then I contacted the one after him. Interestingly enough, the first two that I contacted asking for help in Chicago, Illinois, both, both went to jail for corruption. The first one for corruption charges the second one for trying to sell Obama's seat. So now I understand what I'm dealing with. Then I find out after investigating further that Cook County, Illinois, when considering all counties in all states in the United States of America, all counties in all states, they're number one in corruption. Now you know what I'm up against. So while Daniel Babbage is the Lyons, Illinois Police Department, 
and brought in his own people. Now the McCook Police Department are in trouble because they let the murderer of my mother and father control the case. How do I know that? I made another phone call to the FBI. And I said, I need your help. And I gave them all the facts that I'm giving the public right now. He said, the FBI had already been there in the first day that your parents were brought out. The FBI had some of their own questions, but the McCook Police Department sent them away and refused their help. Just like in the John Bonet case. Boulder is sending everyone away and refusing everyone's help because of their arrogance or what they're trying to hide. This is the same thing. So the FBI, they wanted to know how did the garbage cans get moved to the curb Monday morning for Monday morning pickup, and in those garbage cans were additional evidence relating to the double murder of Walter and Dorothy Babbage. Who destroyed that evidence? Who was the one responsible for bringing your parents' garbage cans to their curb? The neighbor said they never bring it until minutes before the garbage man pulls up because we have raccoon problems. And they have learned when you hear the engine of that particular truck, and they pretty much come about the same time all the time, then drag the can out. The man knows mom and dad's health issues. He'll wait. So nobody knew who did this. The assumption was Daniel did it to get rid of evidence. The day after my mother and father were pulled out of the building, Monday, Daniel was given custody of their home. He was given access to their home, and guess what he got rid of? The very first things he got rid of was the chair my father was shot in twice in the abdomen, the recliner, and the mattress my mother was killed on. But I had not told all of you what cements my belief that Daniel Babbage killed mom and dad. When the medical examiner was preparing my mother, my mother had her hand locked in a fist assist. She was hanging on to proof as to who killed my mother. Who killed her? And she wanted the world to know. And with her last dying strength and breath, she held on tight to the proof as to who killed my mother and father. In her fist, the medical examiner discovered a gold police chief's button. That button belonged to her attacker. There's only two police chiefs involved, the McCook, Illinois police chief, who would have no reason to harm my mother and father, and Daniel Babbage, who had three motives to harm my mother and father and kill them. Revenge was at the top of the list. Financial gain was also at the top of the list side by side. And rage because they dare embarrass him to the other relatives. Rage. Danny had three motives. It was a gold police chief button that my mother held in her fist, and the medical examiner discovered. On top of that well, phone call. Cook County police chief wasn't even on the scene until after they called, right? It, well... Mom and Dad lived in McCook, Illinois, M-C-C-O-O-K, Illinois. 
it's all industry and there's only five or six houses and they're all on one side or the other of a very short block. So that gives you an image of what we're talking about. Only five or six houses. The rest is all yes. industry. Okay, that's McCook, Illinois. They had jurisdiction. They weren't even called. They weren't even on site. Daniel, because Walter said, I can't get in the house, he called Daniel, thinking Daniel had a key. Daniel lied about having a key. So Daniel didn't call the one that was a block and a half away who had jurisdiction, McCook. Daniel called his people in Lyons, L-Y-O-N-S, Illinois, Lyons, Illinois, and had them come on scene knowing that that was against protocol. You need to bring in the ones who had jurisdiction. McCook covered that entire area, McCook County. No one was there for McCook County. McCook County was made aware that we suspect Daniel Babbage killed mom and dad. I even went to the Attorney General in Illinois, and do you know what he told me? I said to him, I believe Daniel killed mom and dad. He lied about having a key. He has multiple motives here. He had the entire gun collection seven months earlier in his own home, who then brought two of those weapons back into my mom and dad's home, waited for them to come home in the dark of night during their wedding anniversary weekend to destroy them, to torture them and destroy them. It all points to only one person, Daniel Babbage. Do you know what that attorney general for Illinois said to me? He said, well, I talked to Danny. And Danny said, this is nothing but sour grapes from you and your sister, Diane. Nothing more than sour grapes. I said, oh, really? You talked to Danny? Not police chief Daniel Babbage? By the mere fact that you're calling him Danny tells me you have friendship with him. And he wouldn't, yes. answer, me any he wouldn't answer me any further. And I walked out because I knew I was dealing with Danny's puppet. Then another FBI agent told me, you should know your enemy well and why he's so protected. People come up to me all the time telling me information that I need but protecting their jobs. I get that. And he said, your brother is the police chief president of the entire Illinois Police Chief Association. Did you know that? I said, no, but that sure does explain a lot, doesn't it? No police chief in all of Illinois will touch this golden cow. He said, but I'll tell you what you should do. I'm getting guidance from the FBI, but they could lose their job and their pensions. So I don't, ever, I don't ever give their names. I appreciate them. So he said, what you want to do is let your information be known, everything you've uncovered, put it in like a story, and send it to other members of the Police Chief Association, and they will want to drop him like a hot potato. So you take away that powerful support. And then it's more palatable to bring him down to get justice for your parents. Well, I did that. And guess what happened? He no longer was the police chief. But his buddy who's protecting him, a family member of that person, Brian, took his place. So he still has protection. He's just not the police chief president, president of the police chief association. Then what happened is Daniel quickly because I sent the same package to all the township representatives, all the committee people, and the township president of Lyons, Illinois, so they all knew that that police chief is a murderer. The president said to me of that township, Lyons, Illinois, who put Daniel in that position, I guess, said to me, you know, we kind of suspected all along that Danny had something to do with the death of his parents, but we couldn't quite put our fingers on it. And now I see by reading your information, all the ducks fall in a row, all the pieces fit. The best thing I can do for you is take away his power. 
Everybody talked about helping me by taking away his power. So I'll just demote him and demote him a second time right out the door so then he won't have the protection that comes with being a township police chief. Well, that happened. So Brian, who worked immediately under Daniel Babbage, is now over Daniel Babbage. Because Brian is first commander, Daniel has become second commander. Brian is now over Daniel. But Brian has his have, own... Have you worked on regarding Brian and proving that he came onto the scene uh, where Daniel should have just showed up as family but showed up with Brian there? When uh, Brian is so deep in the thick of it. Brian knows that when Daniel goes down, Brian is considered an accomplice to the cover-up of the double homicide. Brian gotcha. will go to jail as well. He already knows that. And how I know that additional information is when we called up from McCook, Illinois, Investigator Browder. And my sister said, we want a theft report. And I said many times, we need a theft report for the 10 cocktail rings. There's a reason that theft report is important. He said, you're not going to get it. I'm not going to give it, I'm not going to give it to you. He said, you have to prove, you have to prove that they even existed. Hmm. And I said, wait a minute. My mother, my mother and my father went on a cruise years earlier when mom was much thinner. And my mother and father had a picture taken, and they do that with all the people who go on cruises. My mother placed her hands in such a way that she's very proud to show off those 10 cocktail rings. I would. Mm-hmm. See? In the meantime, that, that's once again mom and dad reaching from the grave to tell their story to help me and my sister Diane. My mother's picture, that picture, Walter Jr.'s wife blew up that special picture, not realizing they were helping out whether they wanted to or not. They blew that up to a 4 by 5 poster board size, and that was placed on the altar in the church Daniel chose where Daniel knew the pastor. Daniel had Brian have the Lions, Illinois Police Department surround the church so that only family members and police officers from his police department could come in and no cameras were allowed, no reporters were allowed because they were sent away under threat of arrest immediately. So Daniel, from the day of the murder, controlled everything. The murderer controlled everything. So while we're in church, and I'm remembering this photo, and I couldn't take my eyes off that photo, because it's the last image of my mother and father I will ever have. He's telling me, Investigator Browder from the McCook, Illinois Police Department, Daniel said those rings never existed. Daniel said, you better come up with proof for those rings because if I couldn't come up with proof that she ever had 10 exquisite rings that were very expensive, then Daniel was home free. And I told him about that picture, and he asked me, where was that picture? And I said, my brother, Walter, had it. I remember seeing it there after the church services. His wife took it, along with a poster board of all sorts of family pictures over the years. But I remember that picture, and I know darn well my mother had on every single ring, because Investigator Browder called me from home with the next phone call from his house. 
how I know that? I heard the children playing in the background. And I said to him, you're calling me from home. You're not calling me from work. He said, that's true. How do you know that? And I said, I hear your children playing. He said, yes, you're right. I have young children, and they are playing. You're absolutely right. I said, why are you calling me? He said, you're not going to get that theft report. You're absolutely not going to get it. No matter what you do, no matter what your sister does, you're not going to get it, and I'll tell you why. Because once you get a theft report of valuables, and the end result was a homicide, one or two people doesn't matter, the FBI must be involved and they must control the case. That is why you are not ever going to get a theft report of valuables in the commission of this crime. Because we then lose control, Daniel loses control, who already had control, and the FBI will gain control and two police departments will be investigated and two police departments and their staff will go to jail. What about yeah. New Jersey? Because you're from there. Oh, oh, oh. Daniel also reached out to when we lived in Lacey Township, Fourth River, New Jersey. Now we live in Bayville, where there are honorable police and an honorable police chief, but not in Lacey Township, not in Fourth River, New Jersey. They are number seven on the corruption list, top seven. Cook County, Illinois is number one of corrupt counties in the entire United States. So once again, I'm dealing with the same corrupt individuals, whether they're politicians or police, it doesn't matter. Law enforcement, judicial system, it doesn't matter. So when I turned around, turned around and brought this to the attention of my police chief at the time, a corrupt, dirty police chief, and I didn't know that at the moment, I'll look into it. And that was all that was said. I knew right then and there something was wrong. Daniel, because I made such a stink and my sister made such a stink about those 10 missing rings that Daniel claimed never existed. How can you do that when in the pictures throughout the years, she's always wearing them? Maybe her hands don't always show both hands, but sometimes you'll see one hand, you'll see five of them. Sometimes you see another hand, you'll see the other five of them. And her best and friends... And when you were talking about how through your experience, if they lie about one little thing, then you can never believe the rest? Correct. Uh, that's just what I'm hearing. Lie about the key, and then here comes the, the continuous lying pattern. Uh, the sad thing is, I have to bring this up at this time, but um, we're in a state of not just this case, but let's just bring up a lot of different things in corruption in the government and uh, political and on down the line of I've seen that Trump is really trying his hardest to come after what he would call cleaning the swamp. And that's why the body of believers, the church across the board of the United States needs to be praying so much that this corruption, as you're showing us, is deeper than most people even realize, from city officials um, to first responders, police departments, to on, on up the list. But we we got to pray in, to God saying, Lord, help us. Please clean this swamp. This is not right. And also I want to say, that in scripture, it does say that the blood cries out. 
And that means for John Bonet, that means for your parents, that means for other people that are wanting justice for for cases such as like these, that that blood continues to cry out to God for justice. And so people, like you're continuing, not just your case, but standing on the case with John Bonet and with others that you helped, you're waiting for justice. And so all we can do is agree and say, Lord, expose the truth. Bring forth the lies, clear them up, and let there be justice. Clean the swamp, get rid of these pedophile rings, get rid of these people that are not abiding by due process, uh, not law-abiding citizens, and all the other things that are going on. But also, you mentioned today that the FBI agent said, the only thing you can do is take this to the public where they will force the hand. Is that correct? Absolutely. And in the John Bonet case, by the way, another FBI agent told me the same exact thing. Well, I say it's time for these things. I mean, your parents now, 13 years. Yes. 13 years you've been bringing. I mean, I, if, if this happened to me, which I'm, I'm adopting you and standing in agreement with you on this, but if this happened to me, 13 years of watching people just walk stop free and it's obvious. I'm not even a professional, but it's obvious about those two guns. It's obvious how he called and told your sister before the examiner even started what had happened, that he was there. And if it wasn't just him, but he was there and either did the crime, but he knows exactly what happened. You brought up something very interesting, and you brought it in such a timely fashion. Daniel made that phone call. What reason? Think about, think about this, Mama Julie. What reason? And Todd, think about this. What reason would Daniel have to call Diane, firstborn by the baby, and the murderer, what reason would he have to call her to say, Mom was stabbed 63 times, Dad was shot twice in the abdomen with a full-barrel shotgun? The medical examiner said later, if you can find the importance of the number 63, you can prove who killed your parents. That was not random. She said, the murderer knew the number was 63 stab wounds shallow so she would suffer. She was in and out of consciousness. When she could no longer take the pain, she dropped off into unconscious condition. When she, when she, regained, when she regained her consciousness, he continued and she would drop off in and out of consciousness throughout the 63 stabbings because they were shallow. This person wanted her to suffer, but because that person made the mistake of stabbing her because he thinks he's so smart 63 times, and then telling Diane, don't tell anybody, the first thing she's going to do is tell me because we're thick as thieves and we tell each other everything. So he knew that next phone call was going to be to me. 
The medical examiner said, when you find out why 63 is so important, you will then connect to your murderer. Daniel knew that. Daniel told Diana that. She only uncovered it after counting the wounds one by one and confirming that what Daniel said was true only after the fact, after that phone call was made. Do you remember when we were talking about the John Bonet case and I said that the last reported number address to Daniel Babbage, my youngest brother, for my safety's sake, was 63 Everett Street? Yes. You called them and told them that you had been being harassed and this is where this guy lived. Daniel thinks he's so smart. Daniel made sure she was stabbed 63 times so that it would be in the medical report and I would be so stupid as to believe, oh my God, 63. 63 Everett Street. Hmm. Bill Ramsey went to Illinois. Bill Ramsey killed my mother and father. Bill Ramsey is the person to blame. But I tell you, not one second did that thought enter my mind. Not for a second. What did enter my mind when that number 63 came up is, Daniel, you premeditated this murder. And furthermore, you not only made sure Walter was the first one in the house, so he was the one that was looked at, not you, who was controlling the case, but by stabbing Mom 63 times, you were hoping that I would just, in my hysterical state, go after Bill Ramsey because his address was 63 Everett Street, and you wanted me to believe that he was sending me a personal message when it was my murdering brother who sent the personal message. You see how he was staging the scene for someone else to be blamed for what he did? Yeah, like I said, uh, he either was or was there. But for him to know that it was exactly what happened, he was the one there letting another person in to help or did it all himself? I'll tell you what I believe. I've been doing this for 14 years now for my mother and father. I have mm -hmm. learned what people are capable of since the murder of my sister and the murder of John Bonet. And I tell you, the number of people who should be doing their jobs and are not is mind-boggling. So I trust very little in uh, law enforcement and judiciary, not to mention the politicians, by the way. But I believe that Daniel Babbitt did the stabbing himself. That number 63 was too important for him yes. to leave that for someone else. Too important. Yes. It's, uh, you know, but we, we can't get in the mind of, of when, when somebody's sick like that, how will we know every detail? I, I don't even know how you could even do that to your parents. But what I'm also wondering is why in the world he would have even called your sister. That's mind-blowing to me. And tell and her. give her that kind of detail. Yeah. Yeah. He did that because he knew she would call me. My sister and I made calls two, three times a day, every day, even mm -hmm. if it was I ran out of milk and whined about it or somebody gave me a dirty look, we'd whined about it. Because my sister was my protector all my life. She's firstborn. Yeah. She protected me all my life. I, I'm sorry and you didn't even have to be protected from something so violent and, and ugly and evil. 
Thank you. But this is a time for closure. This is a it time is. when enough people look at John Binet's truecasehistory.net. Go to the far right, Shattered Shield. Go down to Babbage Homicides. When you read that, you will learn who the other monsters are that are out there. And they're monsters that call themselves the Attorney General for Illinois. They are monsters that call themselves the Governor of Illinois, but two of them ended up in prison. By the way, the third one, after the one that ended up in prison who was just released recently, the third one, I said to him, this is information. I hope you will help. But if you choose not to, you might want to think about what happened to the last two that I asked for help? They didn't help because they were the same. They were cut from the same dark cloth, dark soul. They ended up in prison. And he sent me only one word, yes. What does that mean? Yes, you're going to help, or yes, you're going to end up in prison yourself? He did not want to touch this Daniel Babbage double homicide of our parents with a 10-foot pole. So he chose not to help, but to do nothing. And in his eyes, by doing nothing, he was not becoming an accomplice. He was just a do-nothing governor. Everything is coming out to light. And I will tell you, you mentioned President Trump. President Donald Trump, I tweet him all the time, and when I think he's doing something that is really not helpful, I will, I will tell him from a mother to a son. My heart is always from a mother to a child. I don't care how old that child is. I don't care whose child that is. That's the way my mother was, so I'm the same. So I will tweet to him, don't play with your food, meaning those people that are attacking you, you just do your job, keep your promises, ignore them, because you're feeding into what they want, getting you off track, not fulfilling your promises because you're too busy playing with your food. Stop it. Or the ankle biters. I call false media and the disrespectful reporters ankle biters. Don't play with your ankle biters. Don't give them an ounce of your time. You're the president. You have the position to turn around and announce to your citizens Every day if you wanted to, and update of what's going on here and there. You have that power. Why not eliminate the reporters who are nothing more than traitors in a Trojan horse, which is in Washington? Why are you allowing yourself to be deterred from your mission of keeping your promises by ankle biters, ankle biters, and your food? And he stopped doing that. If you notice, he's reporting You're to everyone. You're absolutely right, but you have to think about also the kind of position. You know, I don't know very many people that would even want to be in that position of having accusations thrown at you, name-calling, on and on down the list, fighting, bickering, strife, all of it, uh, to have to deal with 24-7. That's a lot to carry. So uh, may God continue to grace him and, like you said, keep focused on what he needs to be doing there. I will tell you this, and I'm very proud of it, actually. Not in a boastful way. I'm just very proud of it. God kept saying, name names. Just name names. So in the John Bonet case, I name names. In my mother and father's case, I name names. You can see that on the website. I name names. In the corruption of 150 units where all the elders and disabled people in Lakewood were being abused by the management company staff, I named names. It took me 18 months to get that man fired. All of his staff was fired but one, and that one should have been fired. But because his daughter worked for the police department, they gave him grace, and a brand-new management company came in, and the people went from living a life of hell 
and these are disabled elderly people, some are veterans, and they are all in wheelchairs, and they're all in walkers, and they were living in hell every day of their life. They were living in fear. But it took me 18 months, and finally, by the grace of God, that management company was fired and replaced. Those people were fired. They should have been in jail, but God knows why they weren't. But we corrected the situation. So when I see something, I am a dog with a bone, and I keep remembering the elderly woman in the Bible who kept going to an unjust judge yep. for justice. Yep. You're right. And my grandfather used to always say, you're only as good as your name. So <laughs> obviously these people are no good because they don't honor anything they say, sign, or do. And they don't. And they don't. But now I've noticed, and I have noticed this and paid close attention, the public is doing the same thing. These, these family members who have their children taken away from them by Child Protective Services, they are fighting to get their children back, and they are naming, this judge did this to me, this is the caseworker's name, these are the other people, and my children have disappeared into another state, finding out then that they're a part of the pedophile ring. And I said to all of them who continue to communicate with me, listen to me, all of you come together state by state, town by town, and hire a team of lawyers who will take these people who are stealing your children for the sake of profit and benefit pedophile rings, you take them to court under a class action lawsuit. And when you do that, you are supporting one another's efforts, and you are now just a mom and dad, but your moms and dads who are going to put people in jail and attach their assets by attaching their assets, that's how you're going to pay the attorney fees. Well, guess what? State by state, they're now doing it. And in two different states, they have teams that are advertising, we will not only do that for you in Texas, but we will set you up with a team in New Jersey or in Connecticut or Missouri so that you have class action lawsuit abilities in every single state to get your children back. I'm not talking when it's justified. Oh, absolutely not. I'm talking about when it's not justified and these children disappear into these pedophile rings and sex trafficking rings, okay, that needs to stop and those people need to go to jail and there's too many of them. And it's working. Class action is working because people are sticking together. So now in this situation, I'm saying Daniel Babbage murdered mom and dad. Bill Ramsey murdered John Bonet. And oh, by the way, a very large group of people in Quantico, which included a lot of politicians, for a very long period of time behind a closed-door meeting, but I had a friend in that group, did nothing but demean me, belittle me, berate me, attack me in every way you can possibly think of because I'm a mom, because how does she know all of this? And one person said, you're right, she is a mom. I don't know how she knows all these things, but I'll tell you what. If she was not telling the truth, Bill Ramsey would have sued her in order to stay order and decease or stop what you're doing by a judge, and her head would be spinning, and she'd be in the court system, and she's not. Why is that? Because she's telling the truth. John Ramsey would have done the same thing, and this man said, who was in that meeting, Daniel Babbage, her brother, who had all sorts of connections and still does, would have done the same thing. Why didn't these three individuals take her butt to court? Because she's telling the truth. And that ended the meeting. 
Well, tell me now, what is the public supposed to do? Give us direction. If the public just simply, because this could be your mother, this could be your father or your grandparents or your sister or your brother, unrightfully murdered, tortured, and then murdered, like John Bonet, all they need to do is very simple. What do you think would happen? If the governor of Illinois or the attorney general of Illinois, and I think it's the attorney general who would do more, if they received thousands of emails, thousands of phone calls, emails are better, letters are better, saying, why aren't you looking into Daniel Babbage and the murder of Walter Babbage Sr. and Dorothy Babbage? Why aren't you looking at the fact that Walter could not have possibly shot himself twice in the abdomen because there's medical records proving how serious his criminal, his arthritis was in both hands, rheumatoid arthritis. Why are you not doing anything about this police chief? And what the police chiefs do in Cook County, Illinois, they rotate them. Once they're discovered as criminals, they do like they do with the priests who are pedophiles. Daniel was the Lyons, Illinois police chief when he murdered mom and dad. Daniel then, after he was demoted a few times right out the door, became the Stickney, Illinois. It's a small, hinky town. He became the Stickney, Illinois police chief. And now that I've exposed his new location and where he is, apparently people are making phone calls because now he is the Westchester, next town over, police chief. I received a phone call from a resident from Westchester, Illinois, and he said, I learned about your parents. I feel you are correct about Daniel Babbage. I am sickened that he is now our police chief. And what they do in Cook County, Illinois, is when they have a very, very dirty, corrupt, murdering police chief, they just rotate him in another town. And those people are unaware of what kind of human being is at the helm of their police department. And he said, I'm going to help you. I'm going to take your mom and dad's information, every bit of it, and I'm going to give it to the attorney general, who is a good woman, and she's just been assigned by President Trump into that position. That just happened. Thank you, God. So if everyone contacts you. Just as she said, people that are listening, we can have hope in this situation. We can do something about this situation. We can write, email uh, the attorney general who's just been put in position to do the right thing and to push this investigation so that Melinda can have closure, this family can have healing, and justice will be served. That's a wrap.